Um, we're on lesson four. We've entered into this lesson talking about what boundaries are. And then we talked about how they're developed. And now we're going to change gears a little bit, still talking about boundaries, but now we're going to look at the boundaries that are found in the Word of God in the Scriptures. There are ten that he chooses to focus on. You might be able to find others, but there are ten primary boundaries that you can pull from the Scriptures that says, this is how I should be interacting with people, and here are the guidelines for that interaction. We're only going to have time to do five boundaries this week. We'll do the other five boundaries in the next session. God's world is set up with laws and boundaries. Spiritual realities are, are, real, are as real as gravity, and if you do not know them, you will discover them. In other words, if I'm not aware of them at, right up front, as I start to interact and make choices, his laws and his principles will come back to me, whether I'm on the right track or not. And especially if I'm t- doing things wrong, I start to experience negative things, so it becomes real evident to me, maybe I'm not doing this right. So it causes me to back up because his laws are eternal. They're finite. He set in place laws and principles in this world, good and evil. And if we step out of those laws, we will become aware of it because of the consequences of those laws. A lot of people say God is evil. No, or God was, how can he be that way if he's letting that child die? You know, all these kids uh, that have been aborted, how can he let that happen? God set into place laws and a system of order. He gave us the free choice, like this owl, to interact on either good or bad. And the consequences will come as a result of those choices. We need to know the principles God has woven into life and operate according to them. So that's kind of where we're going to start getting into a little bit more meat of the book right now. We've talked about theories and how they develop and boundary problems, what they look like, but now we're going to start talking about God's Word and maybe pull in a few things of what we've already talked about over the past couple weeks. The law of sowing and reaping is the law of cause and effect. The law of sowing and reaping can be defined as the law of cause and effect. Like I said, if God has set in place an order, if I choose to go off to the right side and stay on the right side and make good choices, I'm going to experience the consequence of those choices. If I go to the left side and I choose to get off into the worldliness and my sin nature, I will experience the effects of those choices. If I choose to go out into the world and drink and be involved with a wild lifestyle, I will suffer the consequences of those choices. It's not that he's punishing us, it's that he set in order a system. It's up to us to understand that system, walk accordingly. Let's look at Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. He's making it very black and white, and I like the way this verse is worded in that, in that uh, NIV, because he's making it very black and white. If you choose to follow your sin nature, you're going to have the consequences. Yes, he will forgive you, but you've already gone off and, and broken some laws. There will be consequences, just like getting a speeding ticket. Yeah, the officer's not going to put you in jail, but you've got to find to pay because you were speeding. So we need to keep in mind God's law of order and system in the system. When God tells us what, that we will reap what we sow, he is not punishing us. 
He is telling us how things really are. When he tells us that we're going to reap what we sow, he is telling us you're going to, um, this is just how life is. These, these, these are my laws. You made the choices. Rescuing a person from the natural consequences of his behavior enables him to continue in his irresponsible behaviors. Okay, let's put this into, into a place with what we just defined, the law of sowing and reaping. If this aisle is the straight and narrow, and over here are right behaviors, and over here are getting, getting off into negative consequences. If I'm coming out of the good side as far as, and I'm using that term lightly, if I'm coming from a right position in Christ and I come over, but I take away somebody's consequences of the behaviors of what they've done, I'm interfering with the law. I'm getting in the way. How does that apply to real life situations? The woman who has an alcoholic husband, as long as she continues to put up with his dependent behaviors, he will continue to do it. And she's the one who's hurting. Because she stepped out there and got in the way of what the consequences should have been, and actually she's taking them on herself. Parent and children. Child goes out and gets a speeding ticket, and he shouldn't have, you know, he shouldn't even been out. He's a junior license or whatever. And the father goes up to the cop and says, Come on, man, everyone's done it. Let him off the hook. There's another example. Was he too young to be out past 11 o'clock? Was he speeding? Yes. Should he experience the negative consequences? He should. Because otherwise, how is he going to know that it's not a good thing? If we continually step out there and take away the consequence and bring it to ourselves and make it all better, we've interfered with God's laws. So I'm making it kind of black and white. We'll talk a little bit more about it uh, in looser terms a little bit later. In effect, codependent, boundaryless people co-sign the note of life for the irresponsible person. Cosigns. Everybody know what cosigning is? My kids only could get a certain amount of um, tuition on their own. My wife and I had to do something called Parent Plus. It is we co-signed that if they can't make the payment, we will make it for them. And that's what the codependent and dependent person are doing. You're, the codependent person is signing for their responsibility. They're taking away the consequences and actually finding a way to make everything just fine, just make it peaceful. We don't want anything negative here. Boundaries force the person who is doing the sowing to also receive the reaping. Boundaries, when you have boundaries and you realize right and wrong and you don't step over to take away the negative consequences, that's a boundary. Did you make the choice? Yes, you did. Well, then shouldn't you suffer the consequence? Why should I come in and pay this humongous fine to get you out of jail? I mean, I'm using something that's very obvious. But that's one of the ways that you'll have to look at it. You can find all kinds of illustrations, with, especially with teenagers, in relationships. Did you call them that name? Yes, I did. Well, then you should be the one who goes back and deals with it. Yes, that person's anger at you. You deserve their anger. Go back and make it right now. Teaching them boundaries will help them in later years in life. Even children, as young as you know, five, six, seven, and eight, need to learn that boundary. If you hurt somebody, you need to make it right. There are consequences, but you need to make it right. Confronting an irresponsible person is not painful to them. Only the consequences will be painful to them. 
you can yell at us. Just ask any any woman or man or uh, teenager who's in a home where there's an abusive alcoholic individual. You can yell at them all you want. Does it change anything? Not really. They'll continue to drink. Or they may come through this temporary thing of, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. But then they do. There's a lot of negative consequences that they haven't had to deal with only because they said the right words. Proverbs 9, 8 says, Do not rebuke a mocker, or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. The difference between somebody who's walking within the laws is a mocker is somebody who continues to do the wrong and expects you to ignore it. If you rebuke them, and I always tease and say I know a couple of people I work with are like that, you can tell them right and wrong all you want, but they'll, they will at times even find ways, try to find ways to humiliate you because you're trying to say what's right and they know what they're doing is acceptable in society so they don't want to say that it's right. But they kind of make fun of you in front of everybody else. A wise man or a righteous man is another way to interpret that. He will love you if you say, you know, you shouldn't do that. You really shouldn't do that because this is the consequences of that behavior. That's the difference between somebody who's staying on the left side and somebody who is staying on the right side. And I'm using that again loosely just to keep us focused on right and wrong. That's the law of sowing and reaping. We're going to look at four other ones. This next one is the law of responsibility. The law of responsibility involves loving others. You say, well, I don't understand that. Well, if you think about it, most of us, if we're honest, when we're thinking, we're usually mostly thinking about ourselves, aren't we? What I want. But what the Bible is teaching us, and Philippians goes into it as well, you need to think about what you're doing in relationship to others, not just what you want. You need to think about the choices you're making. How is that going to impact my coworker? How is that going to impact my spouse? How is that going to impact my kids? How is that going to impact our future? You know, the person who's thinking about having an affair really needs to spend some time thinking about what am I doing in relation to others, but they don't a lot of times. That's why they go off on their own tunnel vision. That's why it's one of the laws. There is a responsibility to everybody who is in your life circle. You have a commitment to each other in this body of Christ. We have a commitment to each other in our marriage, to our spouses, to our kids. And we need to look at that. Do we always do the right thing? No. I would say it would be really difficult to find somebody who's been perfect in doing all the right things. But I think the point is, when I realize I deviated, get back on track. That's a wise, righteous man. The person who doesn't care, the mocker, or the person who is the scoffer, doesn't really care. You'll get over it. The dependent person, the alcoholic, oh, she'll be fine tomorrow. She's mad tonight, but it'll be better tomorrow. Do you see how it starts to become so dysfunctional? Does anybody know what dysfunctional means? It's painful living, painful action. It's not, it's not beneficial to them. It's painful. They haven't gotten out of that cycle. So when you think of dysfunction, think of painful. Okay. Galatians 5, 23 and 24. Gentleness and self-control, against such there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. John 15, 12 says, My commandment is this, Love each other as I have loved you. That was Christ's commandment to the disciples and to all the followers who were following. That's his commandment to us. Love each other 
as He, Christ, loved us. He died for us. He thought of us while He was actually putting Himself on the cross. He's saying, you need to love each other that well. You need to love each other like that. Problems arise when boundaries of responsibility are confused. Let's go back to our laws, the laws of good and evil, the laws of right and wrong. Problems arise when we get confused on this is acceptable over here and this is not, vice versa. There's nothing wrong with going out and have a few beers with the guys. You know, it's a rationalization, but I'm trying to say I can go over onto the left boundary and have a six pack or maybe a little more, go out to the camp, and it's not going to affect my relationships. Talk to the other person. When that person comes back from drinking heavily, what are they like? Are they are they responsible? First of all, did they drive back? You know, there's a lot of things that we just start to skip over. Don't drink and drive. Why? Because that's a reason. They don't want you to drink and drive. There'll be more accidents. You lose the responsibility of your own physical interactions with life in general. So we make all kinds of excuses, those who are on the left side, as to I, you know, I don't see a problem with this. So we get the boundaries confused. And after a while, even the spouse of that individual thinks that way. Well, he's just having a few beers. He just went to the bar to visit a little bit. Well, yeah, that's one component of his life. What has been the rest of his life? He starts going to the bar, it's just for cards or darts or whatever, and next thing you know he's back into the old pattern. So, And James talks about that. Uh, no man can say when he's tempted, he is tempted of God, but every man is tempted of himself. He has the thought, the lust, the desire, and the more he thinks about it, that lust goes into, actually, I want to do this. It eventually conceives, like a childbirth, it conceives into something that's not healthy. It's not wrong, it's sin. So we have to remember that boundaries aren't black and white. Some decisions inch its way back into the wrong area of your life, into the side that's negative versus the side that's right. Philippians 2, 12, 13 says, Therefore, my dear friend, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That is a very good verse to memorize. The reason being is this, this slide right here. Continue to work out your salvation. You know, we've talked about search for significance and how that we all have this ingrained belief system that's not totally on target. It's, it's got some of our own sinful nature or some of our selfishness in there. It's got some of our family of origin in there. So we're kind of, some points, we're just not real clear on it. We had a lot of discussions with our kids in that very nature. Why is it wrong to smoke? Why is it wrong to drink? Why is it wrong to date when we're this young? I didn't say it was wrong. All I ask you to do is think about why do you want to date? Why do you want to do these things? Look at your motivation. Why am I doing it? Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling as adults. Why do you want to do some of the things you do? Is it benefiting the people in your home? Is it benefiting, first and foremost, is it benefiting the cause of Christ? If it's not, why am I wanting to do it? There are times, there are activities maybe that I want to get involved in. Maybe I just want to be alone. 
And that's not wrong. But maybe God's telling me, you need to be with your family and support them in this point in time. But I want to be alone. So, am I being selfish? I have to look that out and weigh it out, work it out with fear and trembling. God, if you want me to be there, then I need to be there. And I'm not talking about the martyr who's always giving in. I'm talking about there are times where you're faced with a decision. Make sure you're not doing it out of selfish motive because it'll come back to bite you. Remember we talked about cause and effect? If I continually go off by myself, am I going to have a relationship with my children when they're older? How's my relationship with my wife going to be if I continue to choose to be selfish and just be alone? The person who does that will tell you it's hard for them when they get older then to feel comfortable in a social setting because they've always done what they wanted to do. We, you are responsible for yourself. I am responsible for myself. We need to consider what we said in the first, under the first law. There are boundaries. I cannot be responsible for Nancy's emotional out, outcome. She is. But how many times have you heard people say, you make me so angry? My wife says that. <laughs> I always say, who made you angry? <laughs> Don't psych me up. <laughs> I'm like, what? The, who made you angry? I'm just being honest. You've got this preconceived thought process. You didn't include me in it, and all of a sudden you're saying, move. <laughs> well, you need to tell me about this stuff. <laughs> you're gonna, you know what I'm saying? Those are little things that just kind of pick and prod and marriage that cause it to be tough sometimes. Because we want to do what we do want to do. And we haven't been involved in any of the conversation with everybody else. You are responsible for yourself. I am responsible for me. I can't make you anything. You can't make me anything. We are to treat others the way we would want to be treated. Well, that brings us back to that point we were just talking about. How do you want to be treated? How do you want to be treated? Do you want to be treated with love and respect and dignity? Okay, I want to be that way. Do I treat everybody else with love and respect and dignity? Starting with square one. Starting with your marriage if you're married. Starting with your kids next. Going out into the church. Co-workers. Do I treat people the way I want to be treated? Only you can answer that. Another aspect of being responsible to is not only in giving, but in setting limits on another, another's destructive and irresponsible behavior. Another aspect of being responsible too, that's where I said we were going to go back to Law 1 for a few minutes, talking about the dependent person and the codependent person. There are, there are limits where I have to realize that if I don't set limits on the person who is hurting me, if you're in an abusive relationship... If I don't set limits on that individual and the way they act in my backyard, I'm actually doing some things to myself because I'm letting them in. I need to set the boundary to keep them out. I gave the illustration, I think, last week. When I would go home after college, and my dad and I had made amends, I knew it would be really easy because emotions oftentimes set off triggers. It's not the words, it's the way they said it. And I've heard some of you say in relationships, whether it's family, spouse, parent, child, you say, 
we, we are good. I mean, we have an understanding. But certain times, when we go into a situation, that other person just tries to walk all over me, and it makes me mad. I can think for myself, well, you're going to have to find a way to say that. You're going to have to set the boundary and say, I don't like it when you do that, and find a way to stop that. There is a way, not anger. Another anger, anger against anger doesn't make anything better. It has to be in the right tone of voice, but it needs to be in, in a positive direction of saying, when you do this, I feel like you're stepping all over me. I feel like you're taking my, what I'm responsible, you're getting in the middle of it and making it hard for me to do what I need to do. And that happens a lot in relationships. That happens a lot in dependent and codependent relationships. There comes a point where that person's behavior, if they choose not to change, and if they continue to walk on you, you have to set the limit. Proverbs 19.19 19, A hot-tempered man must pay the penalty. If you rescue him, you will have to do it again. And I would add, and again, and again, and again. Because he knows he can bully his way into your backyard. You have to set the limits and make sure that he's getting held accountable for his irresponsible behaviors. Proverbs 23.13 Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with a rod, he will not die. They use the word punish. We try to make sure we're not confusing you. The word there would be punish in the sense of correction. When a child has been flat out defiant and is not taking a good look at what they're doing with their life, I'm a firm believer in not sparing the rod when they're little. When they get older, usually if you've done it well when they were younger, there's not an issue when they're older. But when they get older, I mean, who's going to take a rod and beat a 16-year-old's rear end? It doesn't look good. <laughs> Although you may have felt it. I always tell my kids, we brought you into this world, I'll take you out. <laughs> I like Bill Cosby's statement. <laughs> but all uh, joking aside, if a child is not disciplined he's going to go down the wrong road. If he's disciplined and he's crying and he's wailing, he won't die. He needs to know there's consequences to the behaviors. The biggest one I always did without spanking was pick them up and just sock their little bottoms down and say, you're going to sit there. Just the jolt of their bottom hitting the seat, they would stop and go, okay. <laughs> when can I get down? Not until I tell you. You know what I'm saying? You'll find your own boundaries, but those are some examples. There is a strong theme throughout the Bible that we are to give to the poor and put limits on sin. Boundaries help us do that. Boundaries help us do that. There is a time to make sure the needs of the poor are being met. And at the same time, not allowing somebody who maybe is being irresponsible take advantage of that compassion and mercy. George and I have had many comments about that. About We have a lot of people come to us and say, I need help. Can you give me money? No, we can't get you money, but we will help you pay a bill if that's what you want to do. Because money doesn't always go to where it should be. People have a tendency to want to take advantage of somebody who's compassionate. So it's finding that fine line and evaluating what's the motive here. Lord, should I be involved with this individual, or do I need to let them go through the natural consequences of their behavior? I remember one lady way back when before most of you were even here, she came in and asked. We had a had an outreach program similar to the, what they do with the ministerium. 
and she wanted to come in and, and ask for a certain amount of money, and they, the board asked me if I'd talk to her, so I talked to her, and we evaluated the situation. Well, the reason she's in need again, we've already helped her once, is because her son is an alcoholic. And she gives him money to help him make his bill because she can't bear the thought of him being on the street. And we did a little bit of counseling about maybe you need to let him lose his housing or maybe you need to ask him to leave your house if he's taking advantage of you because you're not helping him this way. He's going to continue. But it was interesting to see that that's all she could think about was find somebody else to give me more money because she's taking care of him. That's painful functioning. That's dysfunctional. The law of power is the next law we're going to talk about. The 12-step program in the Bible both teach people must admit their powerlessness, they're powerless over their addictions and sins. You know, Bill W. spent a lot of time researching, reading the Bible, talking to priests and ministers, talking to psychiatrists. And what he came to realize is that the more I try to do it on my own, the more I continue to do the same thing. I need others. I need to realize that I can't do this on my own. So a lot of people were saying, what do I have the power to do then? Well, we're going to look at some of the power things that you can do. Romans 7, 15, 19, and 23 say, I do not understand what I do. For what I do, I do not do. I'm sorry, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For what I do is not good, the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This keeps on doing it. But I see another law at work in my members of my body, waging against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Paul was talking about and we talked about this in Search for Significance, Search for Significance quite a bit. Um, when I get saved, and I know Christ, and I'm reading the Word, and I'm listening to the message, and I'm doing Bible studies, and I'm hearing all these boundaries that I need to have, there's still something in me that wants to go back over here. There's still a desire to do what I've always done. Some of that could be because it feels more comfortable when I'm in that environment. Well, yeah. yeah, you would. If that's all you ever knew before salvation, that might feel more comfortable. Is it good for you? I would challenge you to look back over your, your history then and ask, is it good for me to do those things again? But even the children of Israel, I was reading in um, Ecclesiastics where God was uh, judging and, and making a prophecy through Ezekiel, and he was saying how Israel has continually chosen to be rebel. You're a rebellious nation. You always go against what I want you to do. You won't come over here. But if you'll just repent, if you'll just confess you're wrong and repent, I'll take you back. But you need to confess. You need to be honest about where that choice takes you all the time. And then ask the Lord to give you the power and the wisdom to move further on the right course. George and I like the verse in Proverbs that it says, A righteous man falls seven times, but he rises every time. You're going to make mistakes in your Christian walk, 
But you need to understand the laws of God and how that he wants you to acknowledge that is not correct. Get up. Repent. Get on the right track. 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And the next verse talks about confession. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sin, he is faithful to, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the reason they put this verse in by itself is, if you say you have no wrong in you, if you say you're not doing wrong, if you believe you're perfect, you're only deceiving yourself because no one is sinless except for Christ. So we need to realize that it's a process that needs to happen every day. I need to look at my decisions and then evaluate, Lord, what do you want me to do versus what I want to do? Are they on the same parallel? Are they going the same way? If we don't do that, we find ourselves slipping off into the wrong use of power. So here's some examples of what you have power over. You have the power to agree with the truth about your problem, also known as confession. You have the power to agree with. When you understand, I'm, in, I'm on the wrong path here, you have the power to say, I'm on the wrong path. That's confession. And get back on the right path. You have the ability to submit your inability to God to ask for help and yield. Again, part of powerlessness that's real is I have the ability to look at life and, and, and really evaluate it and say, I do not have the ability to be in this environment and not fall. God, you're going to have to help me. I'm not going to go there, although my mind says go there. He's saying, you have the ability to yield. Yield to God and say, I'll do what you told me to do. I'll yield and do what your promises Tell me will will provide me with the right outcome. You have the power to search and ask God and others to reveal what is within your boundaries. Another word for that would be fellowship. As a body of believers, whether your family is all part of this group or not, they may actually be part of it as well. As you're talking with people, they will make you aware of what's in your boundaries. They will reflect back what you're saying. So if they're starting to say that maybe you're pulling away and you're isolating and you didn't think you were, iron sharpeneth iron, are you? Are you pulling away? Are you letting people take advantage of you? you know, I don't know why you do that because he continues to take advantage of you. Set some boundaries. We can help each other in our, in our fellowship of our body to exhort one another to do what is right, to remind each other of the laws of God, of the promises of the scriptures that can help each one of us. You have the power to turn from evil that you find within you yourself, also known as repentance. Another aspect of powerlessness that's still powerlessness is I have the power to acknowledge this is wrong. I owe amends to this individual. Now I need to figure out how I'm going to do that and not hurt them or not in any way hurt myself or do something to further hurt the relationship. You have the power to turn from evil, to make the choice of obedience and turn from it. You have the power to humble yourself and ask God and others to help you with your development, developmental injuries and leftover childhood needs. As we were talking about our ingrained, ingrained belief systems earlier, in the other study that we did, it ties here. As I become aware of why I do what I do, sometimes we realize, I think Sue said it, 
What did you say before we started? You can tell what era we grew up in. Right. That's a good way to say it. You know, it was something you just kind of set off the cuff in response to what we were talking about with taking the knife out of her back. That's the way we grew up. Is it right? No. <laughs> you got to change it. You know, we do some things in just, but be careful that it's in just. I used to be a pro at that. I knew how to hurt people in, in a funny manner. It eventually comes back to bite you because then nobody wants to be around you. Who wants to be around? Dogs got to bite them. I mean, think about it. If you're always biting, people don't want to be around you. You have the power to seek out those that you have injured and make amends. You have the power to seek out those you have injured and make amends. Matthew 5:23-24 says, "Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there first in front of the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift." It's interesting that that is set up in that sequence. Think about it. God is saying, before you come to me to offer anything of yourself, you need to clear the air with who you hurt. Now, how many of us think about that before we do that? I want to do something to just show my, my love for you and do something for you and get involved in a relationship with you. And yet, I've also hurt you. Is that individual going to be able to receive your love if they still got hurt? And we have to think about that. There's a process in making amends, and that is, first of all, make the amends, repent of the action, then go off your gift of worship to God. Otherwise, he's saying your sin gets in the way. Your sin gets in the way. We have the power to influence others, but not to change them. We have the power to influence others, but it's not our responsibility to try to change them. The serenity prayer is a good place to put that in there. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and really give me the wisdom to know the difference. I always add really, because <laughs> it's like, what do I do? You, know, you, get, you really deliberate over some things. Really give me the, the wisdom to understand your principles and your laws. Since you cannot change others, you must change your boundaries so that their destructive behaviors no longer affect you. Since you cannot, and we've talked about that pretty extensively, you cannot change anybody else. The, I am responsible for myself, you are responsible to change you, and that goes in any direction with any person. So I need to realize that if this person, after I've made attempts, to help them to understand that they're hurting me and they will not, then I need to adjust my boundaries. I need to move them out of the backyard and they only come in in certain conditions. And that may be the case with some family members. You love them, they're your family, so you can't you know, exclude them and disown them. You still have to love them, but you can set boundaries that when you go in and you talk, that the emotionality doesn't get out of control, that they don't hurt you again. The next one is the law of respect. Some people fear others will not respect their boundaries. We focus on others and lose clarity of ourselves. 
sometimes when we're really more concerned about somebody not letting me into their clique or their group or be a part of their life, we actually drop down our own boundaries. We let them take advantage of us in the name of I want to be their friend or I want to be involved, I want to be part of that fun. We, we just kind of say, well, in this case, I, I normally have these boundaries, but I'm going to just let them down here. That's an abusive relationship when you do that. You're becoming the martyr, and you're letting them, you're making the choice to let them do that. Sometimes the problem is that we judge others' boundaries. We think we know what's best for them. I think you ought to let me take your kids for the day. <laughs> I barely know you. <laughs> you know, there's people who are that forward. I think you ought to let them come and stay at my place with my kids. Well, we always had some pretty tight boundaries. We wanted to know who else was going to be there, and we need to know the people. But there are people who have said that. I think you should do this. I think you should do that. Why are they making any decision for you? That type of individual can be, we tend to call pushy. And earlier we talked about the aggressive controller. That's the type of individual that is. They wanted you to do what's going to make them happy, not what's going to make you happy. Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. You know, when we're talking about boundaries, we need to be careful because the same way that you're judging other people, God says, I'm going to have people judge you back. You're going to be judged with the same judgment that you dish out. So if you're not a very forgiving person and you're a very power-driven person, God says, I'm going to judge you the same way. When we judge others' boundaries, our boundaries fall under the same, under the same judgment. We're putting ourselves in the same ballpark. When we condemn others' boundaries, we expect them to judge ours, thus setting up a cycle of fear where we are afraid to set boundaries at all. I see that a lot. When we condemn others' boundaries, we expect them to judge us back. This sets up a cycle of fear because you don't... It's kind of like, um, I don't know how to approach this person. Because I'm afraid they're going to judge me, so I go in with saying I'm not going to judge anything. Well, then it doesn't go the right way, and it becomes a vicious cycle. It becomes a cycle of fear. puts you in bondage to fear. Matthew 7.12 So in everything, do, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Again, going back to the earlier statement of what Christ said, he wants us to love others in the way that he loved us. We need boundaries. We need to love... Let me get start over. We need to love the boundaries of others in order to command respect for ours. Instead of being pushy and argumentative and trying to debate and persuade somebody to change their opinion, respect their opinion. If they are not comfortable and they have a lot of fears of getting up in front of people... Don't push the issue. I mean, sometimes people need a little nudging, but there's a point where you stop. You need to allow them to develop their own boundaries further as they walk in their relationship with Christ. But don't be forceful with, with boundaries. If we love and respect people who tell us no, they will love and respect our no. 
if we respect everybody else's boundaries, whether they're right or not in the sense of the friendship, maybe you see things differently. But there must be a reason why they have that boundary. Don't judge them. Respect their boundaries. They will respect your boundaries. We're going to move into the last law, the law of motivation for this week. Then we'll pick up the last five laws in the next lesson. We've talked about sowing and reaping. What are our responsibilities in boundary? What power do we have in boundary? How we should respect one another's boundaries. Now we're going to talk a little bit about what motivates us in boundaries. For many, doing and sacrificing was not motivated by love but by fear. Some people will do for everybody just because they don't want to be rejected. They don't want to be hurt. So they just do regardless of the fact they may not have the money to do it, but they do it. That's what's motivating them, fear. If, you love, if your loving is making you weary and depressed, it probably isn't love. And that's, that's a blunt statement, but I think we all need to stop every now and then and look at what we're doing in our giving. Are we, after we do it, saying, oh, I've got to do this tomorrow? Well, are you giving in love? I think in Philippians we're challenged there. Make sure you're giving out of love. Make sure your giving is out of true love, pure love, not out of selfish gain. People who say yes, resent saying yes, Fear losing someone else's love. This is the dominant motive of a martyr. People who say yes then resent the fact they said yes. Fear losing love or losing their esteem with that other individual. Because of old hurts and poor boundaries, some people can't stand for anyone to be mad at them. Have you ever met somebody like that? Somebody's honest with you and they see that maybe it wasn't the answer you wanted. And they go, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't really mean to hurt you. And they get into this almost gushy, I'll take it back. Let me take it back. And I'm like, ew. <laughs> yeah, you walk away just going, oh, that was, I don't know what to really believe about that. They can't be real. I used to laugh because there was a lady we knew and she used to say, Oh, you are so precious. And she would start down this syrupy path. And I'd be like, when can we leave? Because <laughs> when you walk in, it's the usual kiss on the cheek. And she's going to give you all these sugary, flavory things. And the one, the one time she came up to my son and I at the wedding, she goes, oh. And she used some profanity, of course. You are the best looking man in here. You are such good looking man. And we're both looking at each other like, we know we're not the best looking man in here. Come on. <laughs> But that's the way she works. And I'm thinking, what's real? Does she mean it? Or is she just saying because she's learned to be flowery because that gets her acceptance? Yeah. You walk away wiping your hands. You feel like you put your... You ever shake somebody's hand that's wet? Well, that's the way it is when you talk to somebody who's that sugary and syrupy. You walk away going... Because <laughs> they usually kiss you too. <laughs> You're wiping your face going, oh, I can't stand that. But you have to be careful, too, because then you're, you, you know, where is this judgment? Where are you becoming judgmental? In this case, though, I think we were on target. <laughs> Some people give to others because they feel that that will win love and end loneliness. Wrong motive. 
You don't give to people just because you want their love and you want not to be lonely anymore. That's a dangerous area. And it still kind of falls under what we called, called the martyr earlier. Earlier. Some people think to love means to always say yes, fearing the loss of the good me if they don't. I could never live with myself if I didn't do this for you. I'm like, well, <laughs> that's pretty strong language. You can never live with yourself if you didn't do this for me? That's pretty strong language. It always makes me think, what's underneath? There's a fragile individual under there. If they have to give to people so that they don't lose their own goodness. Some are trying to do enough good things to overcome the guilt inside and feel good about themselves. You're going to find that people um, sometimes that are in a serving mode, they're always giving, 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 doing, doing, doing. Sometimes that's their way of overcoming guilty feelings of maybe not being a good person. So they're always giving and they're not necessarily stopping to really spend some time with the Lord to ask, what am I supposed to do? They're just always giving. Busyness. Those are your busy people. Always busy. Do, 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 do. Every time the church doors open, be there. Every time there's an activity, be there. Every time they need to, do it. You know, that's not wrong, but if I'm doing it out of a need for love, then that's wrong. You're supposed to give love, not do it to get love. We get our, our, our boundaries mixed up. Many have received things with guilt messages attached and feel a burden to pay for what they have received. I missed a word there. To pay for what they have received. You know, many times I've heard people say, well, we really need to do for them because... Remember the time they gave to us? And I'm thinking, that's still not the right reason. If you're giving out of love, love expects nothing back in return if you go through 1 Corinthians 13. But if I've got this MO underneath, my mo- like MO in my language is motivation. If my motivation is I have to give or I'll feel guilty or because of past guilt messages that have been laid on me, uh, a lot of times that's, this one really applies in families. I know in our family, if we didn't go to church, my mother had a way of making us so feel so guilty that we wished we would have. I mean, she would say, the Lord might come back tonight, and you're sitting here watching TV. You should be in church. Well, I need to go to church because I want to go to church, not because I've been <laughs> manipulated into going to church. But we always, we always talked about how mom could just say a few zingers, and we'd be like, oh, I feel so guilty. I better go. <laughs> Families can be a real core area where this type of thing happens. You want your children to go to church. You want your children to give of whatever they have because they want to, not because you pressured them into it. Many feel the need to give in, to give in order to feel good. These individuals are known as people pleasers. I need to give in order to feel good, so I'm always looking at opportunities to make sure that I have your approval that's when I feel good. When everybody says, oh, that was great. Oh, you're such a good person. Oh, if your identity is built up on what other people says, there's a problem underneath. Some over-identify with others' losses and become enmeshed in their problems to the point they can't say no. Some people 
over-identify. Maybe I've had a loss in my life, a loved one, and when I find out you've had a loss, I get so over-identified with you that I'm just, oh, I, what can I do for you? Let me help you. And I'm pushing myself into their boundaries whether they want me or not. Some people, when they're going through grief, want to be alone. They don't want me breathing down their neck saying, oh, but you'll feel this way tomorrow. Oh, but you'll feel this. Don't tell me how I'm going to feel. Let me go through it myself. I mean, that's, that's the boundaries we have to watch. Don't be forceful with what you believe or judge another person should feel. They may not. They may not. The point is this. We are called to freedom. And this freedom results in gratitude, an overflowing heart, and a love for others. When we find Christ, he has called us to freedom, not enslavement into blurred boundaries where we always get pushed and shoved. Kind of like it says in James chapter 1, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. When you ask, ask in faith. Well, if I'm trying to ask with all these blurred boundaries, I'm not asking in faith. I'm asking because... I want to do the right thing, but I'm asking in a waving environment going from left to right. Remember, this was our boundary between right and wrong. God's laws. This is wrong. You'll have consequences. This is right. But if I'm fluctuating back and forth because of what you have said should be the boundaries, then I'm at the control of you with my emotions. And that's not the way it should be. It should be that I'm in the Word. It should be out of a relationship with Christ. And it should be out of a fellowship of believers that also do the same things. If you serve to get free of your fear, you are doomed to fail. If we're coming to church out of a fear you know, that somebody's going to think less of me, that's the wrong reason. If we're giving out of a fear, that's the wrong reason. You're going to fail at feeling any sense of pure goodness from God himself because you're doing it with everybody else being the ones who are judging. We talk about this a lot. Let God work on the fears, resolve them, and create healthy boundaries to guard your freedom. That's a good way to look at it. Letting go, letting God. We, we use that phrase quite a bit. The question is, when you've looked at these first five laws, these are laws that are found in the scriptures. How do you hold up under them? I can tell you that it's been a long process to where I am right now from where I used to be. And the only thing that has been able to, to really heal me in all this stuff has been God's word, God's people, and time with him. That's the only thing, because he will help steer you. He will bring the right people along when you need the encouragement. But I have to be looking and evaluating, what's my motivation? Where's my responsibility in this situation? What is the power I have here? Using that term loosely. What's the power I have in this situation? And what am I sowing in respect to what am I going to get? If I'm sowing out of love, I should... I expect to receive love back. If I'm sowing out of selfishness, there's not going to be a whole lot of return on that. 